The first chapter of Genesis says that every person was made in God's image and likeness. And God says, remember that you are holy for I am holy. If I don't see holiness and godliness in another person, I feel I'm committing an act of blasphemy. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Well, I'm speaking in good faith today with Rabbi Sam Spector. I'm so glad you came in. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You are newly a rabbi at Congregation Colomy in Salt Lake City. Of course, you've been a rabbi in Los Angeles. Yes. A congregation there before that, originally from Seattle. Let me just ask about your beginnings. Uh, Was Judaism always a part of your life? Judaism has always been a, a part of my life. I grew up in a family, though, that was fairly secular. We went and belonged to Reform Synagogue, which is a progressive sect of Judaism, it's the largest sect of Judaism in the United States. Around age 14, 15, I, on my own, became a lot more traditional. I decided around that age that I wanted to become a rabbi and haven't looked back. Uh, the only thing I've wanted to do instead is play second base for the Seattle Mariners, but I'm still <laughs> waiting on a phone call for that. But It's not too late. <laughs> I, I think it might be. But I became more involved around age 15. I mean, so, that's a time that people do start to question and wonder about things. It's, yeah. it's striking to me that you decided not just to be more religiously observant, but to consider being a rabbi. Did, did you have a really influential rabbi yourself? I did. When I was 15, I had um, a wonderful rabbi, actually wonderful rabbis, a married couple, Rabbis Jonathan and Beth Singer, who were the rabbis of Temple Beth Am in Seattle. Now they're the co-senior rabbis of Congregation Emanuel in San Francisco, a big famous synagogue. Uh, my parents were going through a divorce when I was 15, and that was really difficult on me. One of the wonderful things about being a rabbi is you get to be a part of people's stories. When you see they're going through something great, you're invited to share that and celebrate Mm. that with them. But also when people are going through difficult things as well, that's an opportunity to reach out to them. Yesterday I spent an hour and a half having having lunch with one of my 15-year-old students who's going through a difficult thing in her life right now. And so my rabbis reached out to me and really nurtured me and gave me a lot of leadership positions and really helped me grow in the community. And I got to see from an early age that as a rabbi, I could be involved in social action and social justice. I could use my position as well as my faith to create change in the world and make the world a better place. But like I just said, too, I get to be a part of people's stories in their best and worst moments and connect their traditions and their faith to those moments. And even for the most secular people, they seem to want that. And that's a real privilege and honor. Well, those are times when people do feel to turn to God somehow. And nice to have someone there, maybe who can help walk people through an experience. Because it's a first time for us when we lose someone, when someone's sick. Along that path, other than baseball, (laughs) if you ever thought, well, maybe I'll just show up at synagogue and not worry about being a rabbi. I never really had that moment after being 15. I was pretty driven. Um, My father is a pediatrician. 
he has a picture of himself when he was four years old listening to a, his teddy bear with his stethoscope and it says <laughs> future Dr. Specter. And my brother is a, also a pediatrician and he has a thing that he filled out from first grade that said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it said pediatrician. And so in my family, deciding what I wanted to do for the rest of my life at age 15, I was kind of late to the game, I think. <laughs> but I haven't looked back. I really do love what I do. And every day I'm grateful to do it. And I'm thankful. I mean, where it is challenging and where sometimes you do have those difficult moments is often you become a clergy person because you love faith so much and you love praying so much. You get so much out of it, getting to sit and learn and study. And I still get to sit and learn and study and grow. But now uh, a lot of my job is not so much about connecting to prayer myself. I try to, and often I do, but more facilitating prayer for my community, putting my own faith needs a bit on the back burner at times Mm. to accommodate uh, entire community's needs. Let me ask you about two things in your youth. One is, aside from having a very helpful set of rabbis in your youth, was there a moment or an event or something that made you realize, I really do believe in God? There have been a lot of moments where I've gone to see holiness in this world. One moment in particular that comes to mind where I said, if this isn't proof to me that there is a God, then I don't know what else there could be. When I was in high school, there was a program called JSERV where Eight cities were chosen, and eight teenagers from each of those cities were selected to come to Washington, D.C. to plan in their city a Jewish day of service Mm -hmm. in in their city. I was one of the delegates selected from Seattle. And so we went to Washington, D.C., and it was the middle of winter, and it was freezing cold and snow. I went to this square where a lot of homeless people sleep and live. And I brought with me to distribute a bunch of socks and toothbrushes. And so there I was feeling pretty good about myself and what a great guy I am because I'm (laughs) handing out socks and toothbrushes to um, poor people and homeless people, ironically only a few blocks away from the Capitol where some of the most powerful and wealthier people Mm -hmm. live. I remember there was um, a man, his name was Maurice, who came up to me and he asked me, what do you have? And I said, socks. And he said, I already have socks. What what else do you have? I said, well, I have toothbrushes. And he said, well, I already have a toothbrush. What else do you have? And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't have anything else for you. And he looked up at me and he said, do you know how to pray? And I said, yes, I know how to pray. And Maurice said, I don't know how to pray, and nobody has ever prayed for me before. Will you pray with me? And I told him, of course, and he put his arms around me, and he just started to sob and cry. And there we were in the middle of January with snow falling on us, and for about 10 minutes we stood there and just held each other and prayed and we had such different lives, such different experiences, such different needs, and yet we found holiness in each other. We were from the opposite Washingtons, Washington State and Washington, D.C., and 
I think God was in that moment, was yeah. present in that moment you, with you us. You felt that. I did. How old were you? I was about I was 16, I believe, when that happened. And that's nice that you had a, a prayer life, that that wasn't a difficult. It may have been an unusual circumstance, but you were prepared for that. I meet people who tell me they don't believe in God or that they don't pray or they don't believe in prayer. Well, instead of trying to convince them that there is such a thing of, as God, I ask them, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they say, well, I don't believe that there's this white man in the sky who judges us. That's not the God I believe in either. I tell them, tell me what you do believe in. And they say, I believe in the interconnectedness of human beings. Mm. I say, well, so do I, but I call that God. Like, there's no reason for me evolutionarily to help a homeless person. That person is a competitor of mine for resources and food and all these other things. And yet there's something in me that sees holiness in that mm. person that wants to help that person. And there's no biological explanation for that. But instead, I, I think that that's what God is, is God enables that for me. In terms of not believing in prayer or not knowing how to pray, I just ask people, do you have hope? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had somebody you love be sick and you say, I hope they get better? I'm scared. Well, that's prayer. Maybe you aren't saying God's name, or, but by acknowledging the world as it is, but expressing what you hope the world will become— that's what prayer is. Trying to look just a little bit on a Facebook page to try and learn a tiny <laughs> bit about you, I was quite struck with a photo, I don't know if it was your first time, but it's you at the Western Wall mm. as a young man, I'm guessing maybe 13, 14, oh, yeah, somewhere I'm around sure there. I know which one you're talking about. I was 17, actually. Oh, I always okay. look a little younger, um, but <laughs> that was my first time there. What did it mean to you to be both in that country— that is the home of the tradition, and to be sure. there at the wall. Wow. Or can you understand that at that age? I am a was and am a very proud Zionist, and people don't always know what that means. I'm a person who believes that just as so many other people in the world have a home and the right to self-determination, so do the Jewish people in their historic homeland. My grandfather was a huge Zionist. He He didn't have much money, sorry for saying this on BYU radio, but my grandfather was a bartender. He was a menial job like that. And whatever money he would save up, he would give that money back to the Jewish community and give it to the state of Israel bonds. And he died before ever getting to go to Israel. My grandmother, a few years later, did go to Israel. She never knew how to swim. And she floated in the Dead Sea. And when she heard the story the martyrs of Mount Matsada, she started crying mm. and clapping. Uh, that's what that place meant to them. And for thousands of years, my family and our people have prayed towards Jerusalem. Our synagogues in, in the United States all face east towards Jerusalem. The ones in India face west. And in Moscow, they face south. And in Johannesburg, they face north. We all face towards Jerusalem, and every year at Passover, we say next year in Jerusalem. So for me to get to go there was a fulfillment of thousands of years of a dream for me. Just to give you an idea, in Utah, where I currently live, Jews make up 0.18% of the population. And so it's something remarkable when you go to a country and everybody around you is Jewish, and it's exciting. 
I remember I was on the plane and I was looking out the window the whole time, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then I saw the land and I just got so excited and don't sit next to me on airplanes. Cause all I was saying, I was in my head saying, God, please, if this plane is going to crash, please let it crash over the land of Israel. So at least for a millisecond, <laughs> I can say I've been there. Um, then to go to the Western wall was an incredibly moving experience for me as well. For the first time, I can't really even describe what it's like, but that first trip to Israel is very special. Uh, no, you lead trips to Israel, you were saying, and yes. uh, and I encourage everybody, regardless of your faith, to go to Israel because it's the only place where instead of a tour book, you can walk around with a Bible. And I, I, I'm not a Christian, but I remember seeing a church there my first time. This was before, and I asked my tour guide, "What's that church there? It looks, it looks neat." And he said, "Oh, do you know in the Christian Bible?" with the story of Jesus where he says, before the cock crows, one of you will deny me three times. I said, yeah, I've heard that story. He goes, oh, it happened right there. St. Peter in Galicantu. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know it better than I do. And and then uh, I didn't speak Hebrew at that time. I do now, but there was a big field and it had a sign on it in Hebrew. And I asked, what does that sign say? It says, and the tour guide said, it says, this is where David killed Goliath. And he just... You're blown away <laughs> that this little and you're place, looking around for stones on the ground. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Uh, when I grew up in Seattle, I remember doing a field trip to downtown Seattle, and my teacher pointed out a building and saying, "Kids, this building is from the 1890s. It's the oldest building in Seattle. It's over a hundred years old." And then you are there, you are in this place, and you're walking past buildings that are thousands of years old, and it's it's incredible. Everybody should go and. As I've been to over 40 countries, but in this tiny little place, smaller than New Jersey, you experience something that you can't experience anywhere else. There's nowhere else like it where you feel the holiness. You mentioned as a rabbi helping people with making spiritual connection with prayer, with Torah, but that you have maybe a little less time than you might like for that personally. But when you do have that time, are there favorite passages? Are there places that are like a touchstone or an encouragement or or something that, I mean, you can't ask someone, what's your favorite sure. verse of the Word of God? Well, I can ask that, but I don't know <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone can have one. Uh, two that really stand out to me in the Torah are from the first chapter of Genesis, which says that every person was made in God's image and likeness, mm-hmm. and... And later on in the Torah, it's God says to the people or says through Moses, remember that you are holy for I am holy. Mm-hmm. And so I think those two verses really are what we should be doing, are a commandment really of, of how we should be um, treating each other. That if I don't see holiness in you, regardless of your faith or ethnicity or whatever, mm-hmm. if I don't see holiness and godliness in another person, I feel I'm committing an act of blasphemy. A story that has given me a lot of inspiration. I'm a, you were asking any other thoughts about a career other than second baseman for the Mariners or a <laughs> uh, rabbi. Uh, I love history. Maybe I'd be a history professor. One of the most fascinating places I've been is Egypt. And the ancient Egyptians kept phenomenal records. So a metaphor I often use is that we, we see in Egyptian records that it took only about 13 days 
for the Pharaoh's army to go from Giza in Egypt to the promised land. Mm. And yet the Torah says that took the Israelites 40 years and that they went not in a straight line, but in this huge circle. That's something I actually really love. Uh, The book of Numbers, we call it Numbers in English, but in Hebrew it's called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. Mm. Sometimes when we're looking to go from our place of darkness, our place of bondage, to our own promised land, it's not a straight, easy shot, but rather we have to spend time wandering in the wilderness and going in circles and having setbacks in order to find that promised land, that personal promised land. It's so inspiring. And we're reminded, by the way, I, I this 15-year-old I met with yesterday, she was saying, I'm 15 years old and I don't know my purpose in the world yet. You, you might be the wrong one to yeah, talk to about. Maybe. Well, I'm still discovering every day. But <laughs> but what I reminded her, I said, Who's the greatest Jew of all time according to our tradition? She said, Moses? I said, Yeah. Well, Moses spent his first 40 years of his life hanging out in a palace, not really knowing who he was. Then he spent the next 40 years of his life hanging out with sheep in the desert. The Moses that we all know, who freed the Israelites and became our hero and became the, in our tradition, we say the closest person ever to God, to have a relationship with God, that Moses didn't exist until he was 80 years old. So it's never too late for us to reach our greatest potential. Yeah. And we don't know how God is shaping us for those things he has in the future, perhaps. No clue, but I I like to think that I remember when I was a child, I was in fourth grade, and we visited a mosque, and the imam at the mosque asked me what I learned in school that day. And I said, I didn't, what I learned in school so far that day. I said, I haven't learned anything today, which was a common answer, I would say. And his response to me, he said, he said think harder. He said, the day that you don't learn a single thing should be the day that you depart from the world. And that, that always stuck with me. Every day, we are learning new things. We're learning about each other. We're learning about our world. I'm meeting people who were created in God's image that I didn't even know existed. And they're changing my worldview just by knowing their existence. So I think that every day we are being shaped to become the people that we are capable of being and to create the world that in, in the way that it's capable of becoming and being partners with God in that process. You mentioned early on about one of your grandparents, uh, your grandfather. Yes. That they were immigrants. My grandfather was uh, an immigrant. My grandmother was born in the United States, I think two years after her parents had, had immigrated, but both of their first languages were Yiddish. Mm. I'm just wondering if if you, because of that, hold a place in your heart for the stranger or the person who finds himself in a new situation. Absolutely. The story of the immigrant is our story. Sadly, with this horrible shooting that occurred at Pittsburgh Synagogue, it was done in response by a radical who was angry that that, that synagogue, like my synagogue, had had a Shabbat service the week before in honor of welcoming refugees. Hmm. The synagogues chose that Shabbat purposefully because it was the portion 
of the Torah that we read that week when Abraham is told by God, go out and leave your home, mm-hmm. leave the home of your father and go to this land. And Abraham has to, purely with carrying only his faith, leave his home, create a bear tomorrow for his his children. And I'm one of those children. My grandfather was born in what's called a shtetl, a tiny village in Ukraine. The name of it was Brylov. It had about 3,000 people in it, 2,000 of whom were Jewish. And my grandfather left in 1912 from this shtetl when he was a baby. His father had left a couple years before and and came to America and saved up money to bring his family over by digging through the garbage and finding things he could sell. Mm. If you go to that village today and you ask them, where do the Jewish people live? They'll say Jewish people never lived here. And that's because on February 12th, 1941, the Nazis came into that village and shot every Jewish person who lived there. And that would have been my grandfather too, had he not left. I think that there's never been a country in the world that has been so wonderful as the United States to my people. And I think it, it shows that when my great-grandfather, like I said, dug through the garbage to find things to sell, and then his son became a bartender, and then my grandfather's sons became a lawyer and a doctor, and then he, there's me, where I'm getting to walk around openly and proudly expressing my Jewish identity and heritage and faith, and people embrace that here. It's really special. And the main idea in Judaism that we talk about on Passover is the hope that tomorrow has the potential to be better than today. So with immigrants and refugees in particular, it's hard for me to see any issue that's more of a Jewish issue than that one. I appreciate that you're coming to speak to me early today because later you're on campus as part of an on-campus vigil. Let me ask in a time where there is, I won't say majority because I don't think it is, but when there are some vocal anti-Semites, how can folks who are not Jewish support a congregation like yours? Thank you for asking. The support that we've received has been phenomenal. Every day when I come to work for the past week, there have been bouquets of flowers hmm. um, there. People made donations the other night. The other night we had a candlelight vigil, and I was hoping that some people would show up. So originally I was planning maybe we'll have something with 40, 50 of our members will show up. We had over 500 people come and over 15 elected officials and over 20 faith leaders from over a dozen walks of life came to stand with us. Hmm. That was amazing and incredible. And thank God that that shooting did not occur at our synagogue, which it easily could have just as easily as it happened in Pittsburgh. But that morning of the shooting, we had a bar mitzvah service going on, celebrating a young man in our community. But we also had a, a group of middle schoolers from a Unitarian church who were visiting us. And we had four BYU students who were visiting us that day. And I think that's what people need to be doing um, is coming and sitting and learning and meeting others. Uh, The person who carried out this act of violence showed so much ignorance, and I doubt knew any Jewish people, but the Anti-Defamation League reported that in the past year, anti-Semitic events are up 57% Hmm. in our country, which is... One year. In one year, 
which is the highest that they've ever recorded since they started recording in 1979. I think, unfortunately, we're living in a time when xenophobia is becoming popular again, when it's becoming a norm. I mean, this shooting in Pittsburgh has attracted, of course, a lot of attention to that fact. But days before, there was a man who tried to break into an African-American church, which was fortunately locked, and he went to a grocery store in Kentucky and shot the first two black people he saw just because they were black. And we saw another man who sent over a dozen bombs to people because they were of a different political persuasion than him. I I just said uh, that there's no more Jewish issue in my mind than immigration and standing up for the refugee, which is part of our story. But let me add on to that, that there's also nothing more Jewish, in my opinion, than voting. What I'm going to say at this vigil that's being held here at BYU is that there are people in both parties who are promoting messages of hope and love and holiness. And there were people from both political parties who stood with us at our vigil the other night. But unfortunately, we're also seeing people in our country who are elected officials who are promoting xenophobia Mm. and making hate speech normalized. And so a way that people can help us is by telling their elected officials, if you are going to promote hate speech, you are going against our national interest and our communal interest and our global interest, and in my opinion, God's interests. And you don't represent us if you will talk like this, and so we will replace you with somebody who does see holiness in others. Thank you. Is there something I should ask you that I don't know to ask you? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Or something that you think, well, I really hope to get to talk about this or that. Not in particular. I mean, this has been a real privilege for me, uh, is getting to come and talk about my faith. It surprisingly... In the Jewish community, we have so many different views. So I I never say Judaism says this because (laughs) I'll get you'll get a thousand phone calls from Jewish listeners complaining, saying that's not what we believe. There's a joke about a guy who washed ashore after a shipwreck on a deserted island, and he lives on this island by himself for the next five years. Five years later, a rescue ship finally comes and discovers him. They say, you've lived on this island for five years. What what have you done here? He said, well, I built my own little community. So can you show us? He says, sure. This is the little storage area I built for my food. This is where I built the wells to collect the rainwater. Here's my home. He said, and these are the two synagogues I built. <laughs> and they said, why, why did you build two synagogues? He said, well, this synagogue is the one I pray in, and this is the one that I will never step foot in. <laughs> so that, that's a little bit what we're like as Jews. So everything I shared today are my personal reflections and connections with faith. That's something I don't get to do as frequently as I'd like to because I see so much of my job is not talking about my connection with my faith, but helping people find their personal Mm. connection with Judaism and with their faith and their personal relationship with God. We have two names, um, the Yehudim, Jews, and B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Yehudim, Yehuda, 
that root in Hebrew means gratitude. Mm. And we're, we're the people who are grateful. But Yisrael, that word means the ones who struggle with God, who wrestle with God. So I always tell people to ask questions. After the name of Jacob who became Yes, exactly. And so I always encourage people to wrestle with God, even to argue with God as we see Abraham do before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but lovingly argue, I guess, and in doing so create their own personal relationship with God. So it was a privilege to get to share my personal relationship, which by the way, if you if I have the privilege of coming back here in a few years, if you'll have me again, uh I'll have very different answers for you <laughs> as I probably would have three years ago because that is a relationship that's ever evolving. Mm. Rabbi Samuel Spector is the rabbi of Congregation Kolomi in Salt Lake City. Shalom and Toda Rabbah for coming today. <laughs> toda Rabbah, Toda Lecha. Thank you very much to you and your listeners for joining me today. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Rabbi Sam Spector. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. How do you learn to see God in other people? Can you remember the last time you made an effort to get to know someone who was different than you are, whether it was religion, race, sports team, whatever difference might exist? And what are the moments that confirm your faith that there is a higher power? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Tunlin Rutherford is the mother of five and an adjunct professor of religion at BYU. She's a fan of world religions and oral history and spends her free time collecting interviews about the religious experience of people in various traditions. Ariana Davidson is a Jewish student at BYU, a junior in the news media program, and a member of the BYU Ballroom Dance Company. Christian Heal is husband, father of five, and lives in a house filled with books. Brent Topp is a professor of church history and doctrine, father of four with 24 grandchildren, the former dean of religious education, and chair of the BYU Religious Outreach Council. Andrew Seco is a storyteller who is infatuated with the world. Well, I was especially touched when he related his experience where he, he said that he had gotten to see holiness in this world, and he had was selected as a delegate for JSERVE. Just that moment where he says that he saw holiness in that person because when he said, will you pray with me? When he said God was present in that moment, it reminded me of an experience I had serving a mission in Sweden. I was really, at that point, very new to missionary service, and I had been robbed and <laughs> had no letters and was at a real deep down point. And I remember finding God in prayer and really feeling Him almost as an embrace in that moment. And it was in the bathroom. Sometimes you need to be alone, and the only place to do that is in the bathroom. So it was this moment where God was there for me. It was really powerful. And one of my favorite things to see as I look at other religious traditions is how God reaches and touches other people and is there in moments for people. You know, I was particularly impressed with that uh, story, too. But if you remember, there was something that just jumped out at me where he he talked about 
if I don't see holiness or goodness in someone else, I am committing blasphemy. Hmm. That just jumped out at me because especially within Judaism, blasphemy, I mean, that's about the worst thing that you could possibly do. And he's saying that not seeing goodness or the divine or the potential in someone else is equivalent to the worst possible thing you could do. And that was just amazing to me that here he is holding and praying with a homeless gentleman and uh, and seeing goodness when it would be easy to see all the bad or the 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 worst of society and yet he was seeing the good i think that just really really touched me that uh, that that is what what faith is is being willing to recognize and appreciate goodness in those that may be dramatically different than we are. That was one of the things that touched me of that experience. I like the the story that you were in the bathroom when you found a moment with God. Yeah. I really like that because I think that with all the media noise and everything going on in my life, it's really hard to hear God sometimes. It's really hard to, I don't know, reach out and find him. But then I think I agree that I've always found God most in silence, in the most isolated form of myself, just as much as it is with other people. But when I'm with other people, I do see the divine in other people. I I see the interconnectedness of humanity as part of my faith and as Mm -hmm. part of God and, and what he gives us. But when I feel most connected to God and when I felt most connected to God, I was actually in Israel, which maybe takes it to another part of his conversation. But I went on the birthright trip and they took us out into the middle of the desert. We were at a Bedouin camp. So it was a super intercultural experience for me. And they walked us out with no lights into the middle of the desert. We were away from everyone and everything except the other camp that was also there and they were awful and they brought their flashlights with them and they had their phones out and they were taking pictures of the night sky which as a note is not how you're supposed to experience the night sky (laughs) but (laughs) they asked us to sit down or lay down in the sand and just look up at the stars and i had never seen the stars before not really not like that and at that moment in that silence, in, in the desert, in nowhere, I found God and I felt God in a way that I never had before. I guess the night sky is my bathroom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love the idea of birthright trip. I don't know if you've done that as well, um, Ariana. This summer, yeah. yeah. I'm not like this last, like I'm going this yeah. summer. Yeah. For me, I wasn't like super religious like even in Judaism growing up I didn't really become and I I still say like I'm Jewish mm-hmm. um, oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah um, yeah because well, I feel like I wasn't very religious coming here and so it was really crazy for me that people here were so, like when I first came here it was like really like a huge shock I had to learn to like kind of believe in God when like that's not something my family ever talked about my dad's Catholic, my mom's Jewish, but we still never really, we grew up Jewish and more like agnostic. I had to learn to be religious and I had to learn so much about like my religion because people were asking me questions all the time. 
and I had no idea like any of the answers even about like what Jews believe in afterlife I knew nothing and it's one of the most basic things it's still crazy to me because I, I went to go speak to a class this last week about being Jewish and they all asked me about like more like religious type subjects I never really realized that because here, like, when you're taught about Judaism, you're taught about more, like, Orthodox Jews or the Hasidic Jews. And so you learn about Jews that are more religious. So I feel like a lot of students here view us all as just, like, religious people. I didn't really realize that until speaking to this class when I had no answers for them because I'm not a very religious person. I'm like a spiritual person, but like I'm not, you know? No, I think there is a difference between being religious and having faith and having that inner spirituality. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's what you're expressing there. Yeah. Well, Rabbi Spector talked about the two different synagogues that were built. uh, (laughs) And and, uh, the one that he will worship in and the one he will never go in. And I know when I was teaching at at the BYU Jerusalem Center, and we had a rabbi that would teach the students, and students always wanted to have those religious questions that Ariana is talking about. And they would say, well, what do Jews believe about? And Rabbi Rosen would always say, which Jews are you talking about? <laughs> and that was something yeah. that the Mormon kids just couldn't, they couldn't get wrap, their, yeah. <laughs> wrap their minds around. So yeah. I was teaching a class recently about Judaism, and my students couldn't grasp the concept that there were several different opinions in the Talmud or a Mishnah. They wanted to have one answer to the question because that's what they're used to, is that there's usually one correct answer sometimes in in a, in a, a traditional Sunday school class or a traditional formal meeting. And one of my holy envies of Judaism is this concept that there's constantly, in fact, Rabbi Specter said, quoted the imam that said, the day you stop learning new things, you should stop living, right? And I think this is a real important concept that we can all learn from Judaism, that it's the questions sometimes. It's not necessarily knowing the one right answer. There, there could be several right answers. Yeah, you know, I thought of that as Rabbi Specter was talking about that, and I thought of how Jews uh, in yeshiva learn as they study Torah. That is the arguing. It is the learning the different commentaries and the different opinions. And I think it reflects a little bit of Ariana that we we oftentimes want one answer only, and anybody that doesn't have that one answer, there's something wrong with them exactly. or that they're a heretic in some way. And I think, like uh, like you said, Tana Lynn, the, having a little bit of holy envy of learning from others mm-hmm. and being willing to maybe the argue is is too strong of a word, but that Jewish way of learning, of give and take and, yes. and discussion and thinking, maybe I don't have all the answers is a, is a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I, I loved it at, at the end, the way that religion becomes this wrestle with God. Mm-hmm. We're, we're arguing with each other, we're arguing with our texts, but it's also this kind of wrestle with God and this argument with God, which is a, my own sort of spiritual life is a sort of a novel idea. I, I, I feel as though my job as a believer is, is submission more than sort of talking back. Mm. But I realized that, that, that actually that's a lot more of what I 
find myself doing is sort of talking back and engaging with God. And that's actually what brings us to this sense of personal relationship, which I think has become so, so vital. It's only when we're sort of engaging and when we're feeling alone or feeling sort of broken, calling out in our brokenness or seeing others in their, in their sort of weakness and sort of asking God why we start to have these sort of answers ourselves. I, I really love that idea. Yeah, I liked uh, the concept, and Ariana referred to it, where Rabbi Spector talked about the journey in the desert or the wilderness. And I thought, how often that I have meandered in my quest for the promised land, but that uh, Rabbi Spector talked about that that's part of the process. The meandering, or as Christian pointed out, the struggle, that I think is what God wants us to do, not to always have all the answers. He wants us to wrestle and question and struggle. And and I appreciated Andrew talking about silence. Uh, I would maybe add the word, and it came out of Rabbi Specter. Remember, his his quest to know God came very young as his parents were going through a divorce. And it may not have been the silence of the Judean desert, but it's the loneliness of personal problems. And I think that's when we all have those moments where we feel lonely or like Ariana feeling alone because you're different than everybody else around you at school. It's in those moments of loneliness that that I think God speaks to us in those in the wrestle. I know for me personally, I I had a, a, a Rabbi Specter type experience when I was a young teenager and I went on a trip, a study trip to Europe. And I had never been outside of southeastern Idaho or Wyoming or I'd never been to Colorado. And that's as far east as I'd gone. Being so alone and in a different culture and different circumstance, that's when my prayers became the most meaningful. And I remember exactly a little village in the Alps of, of Austria where I really, I think, prayed in the first time in a very, very personal way, not just because of the beauty of the Alps or the silence of being there, but in the loneliness of being away from what was comfortable to me. And I think that's part of that journey in the desert to be able to arrive at the promised land that that I was really moved by Rabbi Specter's observations. It's a moment of holiness. Yeah just like he was talking about. And I I love that. I love the moment of holiness because the moment of holiness doesn't always mean a moment that you're experiencing so much as this poetic concept of a moment of a person, like a, an aspect of a person, finding the beauty and divinity and hope within that person and within a, anything and everything. And I love that hope is a prayer to him. Yeah. It's not a step towards it. It's not a concept. version. It's it is in fact prayer that mm-hmm. that hope alone is communing with the divine. I thought that was so insightful when he was asked the question, I don't believe in God and I've never prayed and and he said, do you hope for a better world? Do you hope for things as we sometimes struggle with our own faith challenges? It's when we lose hope that we really are in trouble. There's nothing wrong with a faith struggle. It's when we give, when we lose all hope in humanity and all hope for the divine. Uh, I was genuinely touched by by that concept. 
I love the, the quotation from Rabbi Spector that the story of the immigrant is our story. Mm. And I think yes. this ties in with this sense of a religious journey being one between these poles of sort of loneliness and connectedness, mm-hmm. of that it is a journey that, that requires sort of a movement through time and space and, and through belief and, and movement from a feeling that we're by ourselves in our faith to one in which we feel that we're part of a community. I think that's it's really important to come and feel at the end of the journey or that the journey kind of binds us, this, this sense of, of a community of, of, uh, of faith and believers, and that we all experiencing this and that the immigrants that we're seeing today, the immigrants in our own sort of ancestors, that the stories that we have are such a powerful metaphor, I think, for any journey of faith, any belief. So I thought that was uh, that was a particularly beautiful moment for me, and and tying that into to Abraham, into his into his own uh, sort of grandfather's story, and realizing that all of a sudden the most pressing issues, the issues where people seem to be suffering the most, are our issues. Mm-hmm. They're Jewish issues. They're, they're issues for any person of faith. I think. Yeah, and that really goes into the whole issue of the Pittsburgh synagogue that he was talking about and the, that that was really instigated because of an embrace of the immigrant, right? Mm. I think this is such an important moment that we need to be able to reach out and accept better. And his, his concept of reaching out through, through extending that wish to our leaders mm. to tell them, please, yeah. we, did, we need to stop the xenophobia. As a a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Cornwall, the, the furthest, remotest part of southwest England, was where I discovered that faith was not a battle, a dichotomy between them and us, mm-hmm. between believers and non-believers. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's easy to fall into that mindset. It's easy to divide the world between those who are for us and those who are against us, to, to create others the other from almost everybody else out there and it was a transformation in the most subtle shift in my own mind realizing that everybody i was meeting had had some experience with god which is why i loved rabbi specter's comment tell me about the god you don't believe in Mm -hmm. there's actually ways that we can engage with everybody about god whether it's the god that they don't believe in or the god that they do believe in and sort of realizing that, that our belief can actually kind of be something that binds us together rather than dividing us. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful and vital sort of idea right now. One of the things that Rabbi Spector talked about that really resonated with me was when he talked about his uh, first visit to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and that connection to his heritage. And I was really touched where he talked about his grandfather never being able to come mm-hmm. and and grandfathers and grandmothers for thousands of years before that that wanted that and i thought of my my first experience in jerusalem standing on things that were sacred to me but then seeing the faith of those that carried crosses through the streets of jerusalem to the church of the holy sepulcher to the devout muslims praying at al-aqsa and every day the the prayers the at the western wall What was so touching to me was not my faith tradition's connection to those holy sites as much as it was other people's faith connections to those holy sites. 
And since that time, as I have had the privilege of being involved in interfaith dialogues of people of so many different faith traditions and so many different persuasions, even dialoguing with those that don't have belief in God, it has been such a an experience for me, like that first time in Jerusalem, to see the connection of faith of other people, other good women and men and boys and girls from all over. That is something that I, I resonated with with Rabbi Specter, because Jerusalem is truly a conglomeration of faith and secularism and non-faith and goodness and badness and villains and and uh, heroes and heroines. I think that is a way that we connect with our own faith is seeing the faith and love and devotion of others. Yeah, along the same lines as Brent's experience in Jerusalem, I experienced the same thing when I visit India. It's, it's another very pluralist society that has has chosen pluralism. There's some struggles nowadays, but as there is growing nationalism everywhere in the world, but they have done a beautiful job of doing that. And I think the practice in Sikhism of Longar, where you sit next to each other on the floor and there's no division and you eat a meal together and you break bread together. I was able to do that in the Sikh holy land of Amritsar and in their beautiful, huge Longar Hall, where there's just devotion shown outside as people are preparing the meal, this free meal that everyone is invited to, and then you sit down together and eat that. And it's just it's just a beautiful practice, and I, I believe in that concept of breaking bread together. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about, Brent brought it up earlier, that you kind of have to experience setbacks to find your own promised land is what Rabbi Spector said. Because since coming to BYU, and obviously before BYU, but especially since coming to BYU, I've experienced a lot of setbacks and made some mistakes that have put me in not great situations, but I've learned from all of those situations and gotten great experiences and opportunities out of those mistakes by correcting those mistakes. And I guess I shouldn't be vague. So like, um, <laughs> I at one point broke the honor code and got suspended and I was required to do like 30 hours of volunteering a month and through doing that I started volunteering at there's an LGBTQ resource center near the temple called Encircle and I started volunteering there I just met so many amazing people and I got to hear so many people's stories and learn so much about other people and other people's lives and it helped me kind of mature into a different person. And obviously, like, when you're going through something like that, I felt extremely alone. But that also helped me learn, like, the people that were actually, like, good friends of mine and the people I was actually close with. And it also helped me to become closer with my family because I realized I could be open with them. I remember like when that first happened, I thought to myself like there's no way that God can be real because he wouldn't want something so terrible like this to be happening to me. But through like going through that experience, I learned that obviously God is real because without making those mistakes and without receiving those consequences, 
I wouldn't be who I am and I wouldn't be where I am and I'd just kind of be stuck. And that's not something that he would want. Rabbi Spector spoke about his own journey as being one of sort of loving God, loving learning. But as soon as you actually become a minister of some sort, what you're attracted to is people's lives. It's sort of brokenness, it's difficulty, is is this need to reach out and help. And it's lovely to sort of see that journey from we love all of these things about religion, but actually religion in the end is simply about helping helping those in need. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Christian, you've stimulated a thought in me. You remember when, when Rabbi Spector met the homeless man Maurice mm. and he was passing out socks or, or toothbrushes and Maurice says, I don't I don't need those. What what else have you got? Mm. And I thought that illustrates what you were just saying is it reminds me of what Peter says in the New Testament, silver and gold have I none. But that which I have give I to thee. And I think that's what Rabbi Spector's saying. I think in, in a way that's what religion is, is not what I have, but what can I give. And that there are people all around us like, like Maurice that are saying, what else have you got? What have you got? And it was the, the hug and the expression of hope and, and a prayer. Makes me want to, as a believer, to not just pass out socks and toothbrushes, so to speak, but to give more hope, more faith. Can I just add one thing? I just think Rabbi Spector is a gift to our community. Yeah. It's, it's such a – he talks about how grateful he is to be able to be here and do what he's doing, but I think it's, it's such a gift to have him. Well, he just brings a lot of energy I guess like a more youthful energy because he's younger. Hey, um, hey, hey, be careful there. <laughs> <laughs> and has, there's a lot of younger people now going to synagogue. He's not afraid to talk about anything. I think it maybe is helpful in light of the vigil where he spoke of the vigil and the shooting in the synagogue of Pittsburgh. The, the thought that I had uh, where Rabbi Spector talked about the, the great outpouring of love and support from other people not Jewish and maybe not even religious, expressing their love. And and I thought about that, that how terrible it is that we've had these shootings, not only in synagogues, but we've had them in the church in South Carolina. We had it in the, in the church in Texas, the terrible, terrible polarization. So it's not just anti-Semitism. In, in some respects, it's anti-religion. But then I thought of, well, we have school shootings. Yesterday, the shooting in a bar. We've had shootings in nightclubs. We've had shootings at an outdoor concert venue. And that it is saying something that it is not just an attack on Jews or Christians. It is a sad attack on humanity. And that all the more reason why we need to get away from the polarization of our society, that when we have that anger, when we have that us-against-them mentality, it's an assault on everyone, whether whether it's a bar or a synagogue. And I was just deeply touched that we ought to be pouring out as much love to those that are killed in a bar as those that are killed in a Christian church or a Jewish synagogue. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Brent, Tonalyn, Andrew, Ariana, and Christian, and especially to Rabbi Sam Spector from Congregation Kolami in Salt Lake City for generously sharing his stories and his faith. 
In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.